Welcome to Lore Citizen, a podcast dedicated to all things Star Citizen lore. If you enjoy this, make sure that you like, subscribe, and follow all of our social medias. Without further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode two of Lore Citizen. So apparently y'all like this. Um, three three dudes uh, talking about Star Citizen lore. Uh, but we all decided that we're going to play up to um, our the the uh, complete the complete stereotype of of intellectuals. And you think of historians, you think about three white men with graying hair with pipes. So you can't see this, but we all have pipes in our mouth. So that's right. We can see. It. <laughs> We can see each other doing it, but you can't. Um, I'd like to clarify: smoking pipes, and not any other variety of pipe. Yes, entirely. No, I've got, I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a giant, um, a giant uh, uh, plumbing pipe. You know, like like water pipes that I'm, 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 uh, I'm currently having in my mouth. It's just a very big pipe. <laughs> Anywho, let's let's get to introductions before we uh, continue on because this is going to be. We're going to try to make this. Probably not as long. We're going to fail, but, you know, we're going to do our best. Um, so let's get started with um, Al. Who are you and uh, where can they find you? And what do you do in Star Citizen? I'm Al Garrod. I am one of the members of the Inferrunners, um, best known for our series of Fix My Fleet and um, Buyer's Guides and anything else. Um Backer of Star Citizen, lover of Star Citizen, lover of ships, and absolute lover of law because I'm a historian by train. So, hey. There we go. Um, and next we have Jail. Jail, who are you? What do you do in Star Citizen? And where can they find you? I'm Jail. I'm mostly known for getting way too invested in alien languages. I have a YouTube channel and a Twitter, which I'm always banging on about Star Citizen stuff. I haven't posted in a while because I've been working behind the scenes some big projects but uh looking forward to getting some getting some real life stuff out of the way and getting on with those big projects for all of you including uh mapping all the planets of the of star system he's doing he's doing the work of the icc stellar surveyors he's, he's yeah it just that's just what if, he's doing. if cig ain't gonna give me ex exploration gameplay i'll make it myself <laughs> he is the jail is the uh interstellar <laughs> I yes i mean that's kind of why why i why i'm doing even this podcast is because cig doesn't want to give us a lore bible so we're just going to make a lore bible through through collective effort and brain power of trying to piece all of this scattered nonsense together i i do want to before we, we get started go ahead we are the lore apostles yes <laughs> and, and in fairness it's not that the lore is scattered and doesn't make sense it's just that it literally is one-sided approach to presenting the information but it is also scattered to give that sense of time and duration and and you can actually join all the dots together it just takes time and effort. yeah that's that's what i was going to say is that in fairness to cig about that it's the it, i love it because i'm a historian and putting puzzles together is what historians do because you know the one of the realities of history is that nobody sat there going 
hmm, wonder what somebody's going to think about my era in uh, 200 years from now. They're writing usually for the people who they're going to read that today. So they understand concepts, languages, um, tropes, idioms, all these sorts of things, which were already understood by them. So as a historian, you have to kind of take that and then put the pieces together and then form a whole based off of what you have. And CIG yeah. seems to have that approach with most of their stuff. It just, they assume that you know what the Invictus Flight Week is, that you know what the UNE is, those sorts of things simply because they have to piece it together based off of ships and yeah. armor pieces and companies and stuff like that. So, but, but I also, I love that. I love like you being a historian, but I love the, the, the idea that CIG have kind of taken that, that approach of the knowledge you have. And then there's the back, you know, there's the, the knowledge that's hidden. That's, that's there. If you go look for it, it's, but by mm -hmm. write things as if, from the perspective of you being there and, and saying that it's not the oh this is happening because of this it's yeah it's not the wiki way of doing of doing yeah. uh, lore so which is nice but we we all get frightfully annoyed when people get things wrong oh yeah and it's always good to have <laughs> at least one place where people are being right and we can point to it and go yes. hey you want to hear about the period from discovery of jump points to uh first contact with the aliens you need to listen to this podcast. Exactly. That's and that's, that's a great segue. So we can actually get, get going. So we don't go, let Al go on for 15 minutes about whatever. <laughs> oh, that's uh, let jail go to bed. Because it's super late in the evening for jail. So uh, let's, let's get started with um, the, you know, as, as, as Joe pointed out, we're going to be talking about the uh, history of the UN, uh, history of humanity from the discovery of the first jump point to the um, first, um, contact with aliens. So um, in this case, we're not going to talk about the first contact of aliens, but we're going to go up to the point. And then if we do an episode three with following the same formula, then we'll do first contact with aliens to uh, another point, probably the first of our war, just because that's a nice, easy cutoff point, though these durations are getting longer every time we, <laughs> we do these. And <laughs> And we're covering areas that are actually well covered at that point. So we may have to break those up even to a couple parts. Um, so I'll get started with talking about uh, jump points. So uh, the first thing I want to do is kind of bring up, and there's this, there's this one piece of media that I'll play. Um, they won't be able to hear it in the podcast, but I'll play it myself so that they can. I've actually gave them a link to that. So if you guys want to listen to it when I hit when I say so. Uh, which is the the discovery of or the Goodman, the uh, the 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 last transmission of the Goodman. So, if you remember last time we we ended with humanity had spread out to the solar system and had started to take its first tentative steps with giant generational ships trying to be sent to the closest star system using most up to date quantum drives. But humanity was still pressing out into the Jovian moons, into Saturn, into um, and into Uranus. That sounds really bad. I'm glad. I'm hoping this was over three minutes. Um, Uranus. Um, and uh, in there was a small, there's a small uh, platform uh, that is that was located in uh, near the moon of uh, Nesso uh, in. Uh, the Neptune in Neptune, um, I think. I think it was. Yeah, it was, yeah, Nep it was the Neptune. Platform, I, platforms I up around. Uh, yeah, Neptune. I, I flip, I flip uh, Uranus and Neptune in my mind. So, 
um, for some reason. But uh, there was a small platform that was was operating there, and as ships were coming to and from the the, the platform, some of them were just disappearing. What's just completely not showing up. They'd send out ships to go look to, for the for the region, and they'd find no debris. There was no evidence of piracy. There was no evidence of anything kind of um, bad happening in this area. Um, it's important to note that piracy was very rare at this time. It happened, but it was usually station to station rather than, or like location to location rather than in route, just because it was such an expensive job thing at this time, even though it'd become cheaper for people to travel the stars. We were still a long way from having the Aurora where, you know, your mom and pop could buy, you know, 16 year old kid get to get their first spaceship. We're still dealing with, you know, mortgage your house, get a house, get a spaceship uh, sort of situation. So this area of space began quickly began to known as the Nesso triangle, a place where ships would just disappear. And one ship most famously was called the Goodman, was on its way to Nesso when it had an impact. That impact um, was uh, knocked it off course. It knocked off a lot of its 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 uh, general communications and its its life support. And when it got back up, they managed to reestablish communications. But the communication was very brief, and it ended with just a really cryptic message that inspired, we, we don't know if it inspired, but we think it might've inspired um, the Nick Croshaw to start investigating the Nesso Triangle himself. Um, and I would like to point out that the, the Goodman was, as Corpus Pura notes, a type four cargo vessel under the North American Alliance. Um, and it had a crew of eight and it was lost without a trace in 2262. So I'm going to pull up the audio right now of the, Last transmission of the Goodman, so you guys can hear this. Beginning archive playback. Copy that. Adjusting course two seven eight. Y'all got it sorted out? I think so. Gave us a bit of a scare, but I think we're okay. How's it looking? We're back on track. You guys good? Back to send the toe. No, we got engines back up. And nav's online. Huh? What the hell is that? Hey Pete, do you see this? Signal lost. So, that is the last transmission of the Goodman. Uh, no one knew what happened to him. They just disappeared. It would Their, their fate wouldn't be known until hundreds of years later. Uh, but, they... Uh, and it was an orbital platform in, uh, platform of Neptune. Um, but this eventually inspired a young engineer and pilot named Nick Croshaw to start investigating the uh, the Nestor Triangle to see what was going on. Now, it's unclear if he worked for Robert Space Industries, but the fact that he had access to experimental Robert Space Industries tech yeah, I think probably falls into the realm that he was probably an RSI engineer of some kind. Um, and the fact that he could investigate this with such precise equipment, he must have had some sort of backing, either from um, world governments or from uh, some private organizations as big as RSI. So Nick Croshaw began to investigate the anomaly. 
And he discovered that all of the ships that were disappearing in this region had similar issues or variances in their quantum drives. So he began to experiment with quantum drives in the region until he realized that these variances opened up a anomaly that is a, effectively a jump point that we go today, but it's effectively like a wormhole. It's a tunnel that exists between two points in space. And as he began to experiment with this, he used the first ever uh, jump point or jump engine onto an experimental RSI ship known as the X-4, if my notes are correct. <laughs> uh, and with this, he became, he, he piloted the ship himself through this, this anomaly and exited um, Seoul and entered a brand new solar system on the other side of the galaxy, essentially, and was able to come back through the, the jump, point, jump point back to Seoul and report his findings, uh, being the first human to successfully navigate a jump point. And while the Goodman was eventually discovered, because he wasn't the first human to do so, the Goodman did survive its actual trip through the jump point, because that's what it had happened. Um, but it never managed to make it back. And so the wreckage of the Goodman was eventually found later on. There's a couple of great stories about it. Uh, it's in one of the lore posts called, one of the discovered lore posts, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's a but, great story, that one. Yeah. Um, and the this kicked off a huge wave of interest and exploration. Because as humanity had still been expanding out into space, it hadn't quite conquered all of the solar system when uh, the jump point was discovered, uh, which meant that humanity didn't even have a limit anymore. It just continued to expand. And with this, we'll, I'm going to leave it over to like Al, who's going to talk a little bit more about the rapid expansion of humanity uh, through this period after Nick Croshaw's first ever jump point. Jump, jump, jump. Yeah. Yep. So as we enter the rapid expansion of humanity, we really enter a period which I would call hubris and, hubris and greed. A great pride uh, precedes the fall. And, and in many ways, for many of the players of his time, um, their fall was great or fatal. Anyway, if we consider Dr. Scott Childress promised to his daughter, Rebecca, to give her the stars and RSI success in developing both the quantum drive and ability to terraform worlds, we could be forgiven for believing that our manifest destiny was to dwell among the stars. And while humanity had spread throughout the solar system, there was still a reluctance to leave our small blue ball that we call home. There was clearly a reluctance to fulfill humanity's manifest destiny. It is often said that in 2271, everything changed. While investigating the Nesso Triangle, as Paul said, Nick Croshaw discovered the jump point to a new system which would bear his name. It was not merely, though, that he solved the mystery of the Nesso Triangle. It was primarily that he became the first jumper, a term used to describe pilots who made the treacherous journey through jump points. He was the first to successfully navigate a jump point to a new star system 
and return. Humanity was, it seems, destined to escape the solar system. Crowshaw had planets within the Goldilocks zone, commonly called the Green Zone, that were suitable for terraforming. Numerous corporations and even nations made numerous attempts to terraform the world, uh, the worlds of uh, Crowshaw, and exploit the resources of the system. However, they all failed. The logistics just seemed insurmountable. It is surprising that in their hubris, corporations, and at this point, the records don't name any corporations, they're just, the corporations just failed, and nations all believed they would be able to successfully establish a long-term presence and terraform planets in the green zone of Crowshaw. Now, I say it's surprising because when we attempted to uh, terraform Mars, when we tried to do it independently, the nations, the corporations, they failed. It took the nations of Earth to actually band together as a single entity uh, to, to decide, yes, we're going to work on, we're going to conquer this to enable us to terraform Mars. And yet, Croatia comes along a brand new system, and yet the nations and corporations think, yes, we can do this. Hubris. It would take over 100 years of failure and, in the end, a unified global effort before any of the planets on in Croatia could be terraformed. Despite the promise of Croatia, um, as Adrian Zemlock, president of the Martian Institute of Space and Technology, or MIST, would later famously say, humanity has realised that reaching the stars was easy. The hard part is figuring out what to do with them. And that was really the case that we find in all the planets. Many companies and nations rushed to terraform and exploit Croatia's resources and all had failed. In the end, the process would take, as I said, a hundred years. Fundamentally, all efforts to carve up a stake or a claim uh, in Croatia failed due to logistics. And the same issue is something we see uh, hindered the efforts on Mars and it hinders all our efforts to as we go into other planets as well or other systems as well. No one in their hubris adequately accounted for the necessary logistics required to terraform new worlds, not only in our solar system but also in a distant system. Furthermore, jump drive technology was still in its infancy. Flight assisted nav drive nav drives didn't exist and so People, many who took the took the jump through the jump point, disappeared, never to be seen again. Um, and we see an example of this in a later um, discovery of a planet of how dangerous jump points were. And it would take, uh, and the jumpers were pilots who excelled at being able to do this. They were the guys who they were the uh, the favoured few, the, the those who were excellent at task of going through these wormholes and they sold their services as being the only reliable way to traverse the stars. These jumpers were in high demand and they were expensive and their heyday really comes to an end when um, the Tarsus jump drive is developed or the Tarsus um, drive is developed with nav drive technology or, or the, the ability to record our flight is there to, to assist your travel. 
during the, during the jumpers' heyday, nine other jump points were discovered and traversed, adding new systems with potential wealth um, for corporations, humanity, and, um, well, anyone who invested. If they could establish a presence, and if they could terraform, then they would be in a position to make billions. This scramble and effort to carve up systems uh, was first identified in the efforts to gain uh, from Croshaw. And it appears had a significant influence on the fate of all the other planets that were, dis were discovered during the period. The sec with the exception of the second uh, system discovered. The second system discovered is, I believe, one of Paul's favourites, which is Ritter. And um, our um, Professor Adrian Zimler, I'm going to call them Professor, I'm not sure who they are, but since they're president of the Martian Institute of Space and Technology, it seems reasonable to refer to them as a professor. Or at least doctor. Um, <laughs> doctor. Oh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> so they had refused to sell when, when they, they got they discovered the jump point Doretta. They just they refused to share the jump point information until they had significant uh, concessions, and that was that basically the system would become a hub for education. Um, the third system, Null, is almost very similar. Both of them have around five planets. Both of them have, but both of them have totally different um, stories. Uh, Red becomes famous and, and populated and null. Well, basically, there's nothing. That's uh, the story goes. The, the first discoverer goes in and asks, "What did you find?" He basically null. <laughs> um, the null has a classical cephalid uh, star, a yellow supergiant that can swell in size from ten to fifteen percent. This makes habitation difficult and terraform and and terraforming efforts. Um, almost impossible. In fact, there have been three times when uh, there have been studies to to look at terraforming, and each time the engineers and the surveyors have come back and said, this is impossible. It's just prohibitive, and the resources that we'd get out of it, the, the credits we'd get, are just not worth it. And this becomes fairly significant. It becomes significant because we see this as a common pattern um, later on in terms of the UE, uh, what would be the UEE claiming systems. If it wasn't profitable, it's not claimed. And null is one of those systems that is currently unclaimed. Null grew um, the chief settlement in, or one of the chief settlements is in his char on null 2, commonly called coal. It was a research center. Um, and the, the main settlement on null 4, Ashana, is centered on the remains of the Bengal carrier, the UES uh, Olympus. And that's a story for another day. Funny enough, it's actually not a Bengal anymore. Oh, because, well, there you go. Because, because the Olympus crashed in, um, gosh, what is it? Uh, between the first and second Tavarian Wars. And the Bengal was retconned so that it wasn't first developed until the 28, like 60s or something like that. So, uh, it's it. If it's anything, it's a some sort of distant relative of the RSI distant relative of the of the Bengal. I'm sure. Okay, it's so. a, it's the tiger claw. <laughs> yeah, it's the tiger claw. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I find the story interesting because it it echoes the number of times we hear that it's almost exactly the same story as as the Daymar the Daymar javelin and yeah it seems we we seem to get a, a, a admirals admirals of insanity. A... Yeah, admirals Admiral. have a problem. They have problems with judging sizes and distances. Apparently, like the UAE admirals are just terrible at this, those sorts of things. <laughs> so the question is: Does does this bear does this bear bad news for Admiral Bishop? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, so null is is a problem, and would probably ignore it if it wasn't for the fact that it actually has access to numerous jump points. Um, so, uh, so little did Null have to offer, but to this day, it it's still unclaimed by the UE. It is, however, an important system because it would link Croshaw to a string of systems every citizen um, has heard of or should have heard of. And if you haven't heard of them, you've at least heard of the Battle of Vega in 2945. So, and Null is the link that enables us to reach those systems, or at least was back then. In my opinion, it is likely Null would have been completely ignored were it not for the jump point to Caliban, and from Caliban to Oberon, Vega, and Vigil. These four systems would be explored and, with the exception of Oberon, claimed for humanity. Some claim that the warmth of the Vandal is an extension of humanity's hubris and greed. And while this may be true, it must be remembered that Caliban and Virgil now red systems under the Vandal control were among the first of the third were among the first 13 systems found. Caliban was found in or discovered in 2341. Oberon and Vega both in 2356, that is within that first hundred years of Croshaw's discovery. That is before Croshaw actually had a planet that was terraformed. Uh, there are I other think... planets that we find, but that is generally the, the gist, I think, we find. And the story of the Vandal, and story, certainly the story of those planets, uh, will keep coming back um, as we go through and look at the history of the, UE, the UEE and the UEN and everything else. Anyway, that's it. Yeah, so I was going to say, I think you'll... I don't know if they retconned it or it's just something that's unclear, but I think that they changed the dates a bit with Croshaw and that now you've got the first city, Quinton, being founded 15 years after Discovery. Mm -hmm. So while they're mm. certainly probably still doing stuff, I'd consider it that, like, you know, inhabited place from about at least 15 years after Discovery. Yep. It's, it's, not, the Nash, it's not the issue of, of settlement. It's the issue of terraforming, yeah, and the, the fact of terraforming the planet and being able to have it fully terraformed, so that we don't have to live in domes and don't have to live on or don't have to live underground or, or whatever it is. Um, mm. And that's but, an issue that they struggled with. Well, I mean, so Paul's going to talk more in detail about Croshaw, right? So I mm. guess you, you'll you'll have the answer to that. But um, I I think they brought those things up a bit. Mm. They did As a little brought them forward a bit. Yeah, they did. Um, I think it's like twenty two eighty one is when they first started started doing it. Um, but it, it's it's very it's I think it's still in lore. This is one of those problems where, and this is one of the things that actually happened recently. Uh, um, 
or kind of expounded upon recently. But this is one of the problems of twofold. One, this is an, a game that's an alpha, so the lore itself is still being developed and mm. being tweaked. Mm. So dates will change often. Uh, but also because they completely revamped the star map because like 2013, 2014, the community managed to figure out the entirety of the uh, star map that they had planned out, including systems that were supposed to be unknown that we're supposed to have discovered on our own eventually, uh, <laughs> like, like work discovered and where the jump points were, where you could find them, everything else like that. And we're making maps. They were making maps of them and putting them on Reddit and all sorts all over the community. So CIG went back and uh, either because of that or because of other issues, they revamped the star map entirely, but they didn't revamp the lore that they had written for a lot of these, these systems. So they had to go back and change them again, uh, which is why some systems are discovered, uh, are discovered by the UE, uh, the UNE, but were discovered we're, we're like around a hundred years before the UNE was actually formed. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Croshaw gives... If you gives, look at the old... Yeah. He gives, he gave, you look at the old a, jump points, they always say UNE, and then they, in the other documents, they've like, find and replace that to just the government. Yeah. Like, in yeah. every instance. Yeah. Because because um, there's actually... Nick Croshaw has actually supposedly make, made a speech before UNE jumper... Uh, UNE Navy, um, like, class. It's like... But the UNE, UNE was was around a hundred years after he discovered it. I don't unless he was a very old man. <laughs> I don't think he was making speeches to to, to crowds. Um, um, we're not we're not mocking the fact that no. you know, this is they, they they write stuff in you know old places and it gets yeah. updated, and we're trying to pick up the pieces. Um, yeah. You'll just have to bear with our our confusion from confused information, I suppose. Yeah, um, this, this is to, go ahead, Jeff. And it really is. I was going to say just. On, I'm just going to say to to help anyone with their confusion, if they um, I've made a little animation of the systems as they were discovered over this year over this period. Uh, it's on my YouTube channel. If you want to have a look at like a picturization of how this spread out over this time, I'm probably going to steal it for this section and just put it up. Oh yeah, steal it. Yeah, stick yeah. It up there. Yeah. So so if you, they're probably watching it right now as we as Al has been talking, <laughs> so they can kind of get the whole like playing on a loop. <laughs> I've got a I've got a I've got to be uh, full disclosure here. I used it as I was uh, mapping out. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um... Because going find that that's the thing that. Uh, we find it really is a matter of digging through all the information and going to multiple sources to try mm. and get to work it out. And sometimes you just can't. Sometimes it's you think you've got it and then you find something else and go, oh, crap. And so it is it is one of those issues where um, applying those historian skills, solving the mysteries or, or mm -hmm. piecing the puzzle together um, is a lot of fun. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, getting back on topic with this one, I think I think what's really important to kind of illustrate with this this time period is um, it's becoming very very clear that the attempt to terraform or to explore and to settle worlds um, as individual companies or nations is way too expensive and way too difficult. Um, it's just the logistics alone are complicated. One of my favorite examples of this time period is Centauri, which was founded. Uh, discovered and founded before the foundation of the UNE. It may have changed a little bit, but it was discovered by, I think, a North American Alliance um, uh, survey team 
but then was sold to a Japanese-based terraform company, terraforming company, um, to 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 sell. And so the question becomes: since it's a private company selling it to a private company, what's the um, what do you, what do you do with that? Like like who is in charge of what? Like whose jurisdiction is it? America's jurisdiction because no. they discovered they discovered the uh, or North America uh, Alliance the 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 NAA's um, jurisdiction because they discovered the system. Is it the uh, the government of Japan or any other kind of you know? Because it's a Japanese company. Is it a Japanese is it... company? Is it something else entirely? So you know, not only do you have problems with like just the logistics of trying to settle these these worlds, but also mm. the logistics of who's legally in charge. So, yeah, and you get the same type of thing, like that exact same problem with Oberon. Mm-hmm. Um, Oberon has a, raises those same issues, um, and we'll be looking about a bit later as well. Um, I think the last really interesting point to raise about those that that period though is if you look at the the handful of systems they have in these kind of couple of hundred years, mm-hmm. Caliban, Virgil, both have fallen to the Vandal. Vega attacked by the Vandal, so. Uh, and thinking, also, Obron, also yeah. by the Vandal, and no, um, and and yeah, so no. if you, th- you you know we're think we're hearing about oh you know the Vandal invading and they're kind of near Earth. These are the oldest parts of the Empire they're invading. This is like an, an invasion force turning up on Plymouth Rock. It's yeah, like you know it, it's really the heart of the UEE. And I think that understanding them in those that historical context really helps you understand how much that's striking at the heart of the empire. Yeah. Mm. They're not and, just the oldest. They're some of the most successful colonies. They're some of the mm, earliest. Yep. And a lot of them were the reasons why we would eventually have under the UNE and the UPE, the project Farstar is founded because of the success of this, many of these, these discoveries. So, and, and when you look at the other, certainly the other 13 planets, um, planets like Virgil and um, Caliban were among the, as John said, among the most profitable, among the most populous, among the most uh, gorgeous. Um, mm. The only one that I think really compares is is Reta, and that's almost a different case in its in its own right. And I think uh, going to go so many, so, yeah. so many of them are are empty or <laughs> impossible to terraform, or there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah, um, and so. The, the, the systems, I think, as I said, and, and if I didn't say it, it's one of the things you really do want to pay attention to is those planets. Because mm-hmm. they, those, those planets, they're, they're ones that are steeped in our history. When you go to Invictus and you start learning about Lost Squad, you're learning about the, the fall of, uh, uh, I think it's Caliban? Yeah, it's the fall of Caliban. Um, Which, yeah. You know, so you're learning, you know, you're learning about those events. When we're talking vandal incursions and battles yeah you're learning yeah. about those when you listen to admiral bishop same thing sorry paul yeah. i was gonna say it's it, it, in historical context it would be like hearing about um in world war ii the battle of berlin or the battle uh, battles for for paris or or whatever these these steeped places that have lots of history and lots of of culture and their own you know uh, stoic places or, 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 or renowned places even in human history suddenly being completely devastated by uh, what seems like a left hook out of nowhere um, is is essentially what these the, these the fall of these systems are like. We're gonna so 
you know, that's the important part of contextualizing. So when in the future, when we start talking about it, you start going to these systems, understand these are the old systems. These are the ancient systems of humanity that are just gone. Yeah. Now we're going to uh, talk about individual systems that we all found interesting. And so I'll get started here with this, this, this next segment. So the Crochet system was unique because it's the first non soul system. It's the first system after the soul system that was discovered and it was very alien. Um, but almost, almost immediately after the uh, discovery of uh, this jump point, uh, some of the first humans began to travel to the Crochet system and within a, a decade, the first planet of uh, the first uh, settlement um, on a non outside of the solar system was founded in Quinton, uh, which was founded in uh, 2260 or 2286, uh, a little, a little over a decade, almost, almost two decades after. Um, and uh, the, the, the famous quote of, of Quinton is uh, that, uh, of Randall Hope, who's a 24th century song, um, who, who is famous of saying, I came to Quinton and tried to forget, but there you are, where, uh, there you were in the sad and lonely. Um, it's this beautiful, uh, the, the, the settlement itself is this beautiful location on Angeli, which is the, uh, the second planet in the system. And, Angeli itself is this rocky um, kind of mountainous world with large bodies of water. Um, and it's also very seismic. There's lots of, uh, lots of earthquakes and such. So everything has to be built super sturdy there. So if you, if you notice the pictures, there'll probably be a picture up here on the screen. If you're watching this on YouTube of, um, of Angeli of, of Quinton itself, where you see these, these, these structures are squat. They've got big foundations and kind of taper up a little bit more because they have to be built to withstand large seismic, um, uh, shifts. And, um, the, the issue of, and of Angeli, uh, and of Quinton is that every, as Algrid has pointed out, which is every single time the, the UNE or not UNE, the humanity tried to try to terraform the planet, it failed. Um, and it had to do with anything between logistical issues or just, just not being able to be up to the task. And it would take the passage of the Freeman act founded by a proto government called the world summit, which would eventually help found the UNE, which, uh, uh, Jay will talk about um, passing a, a, a kind of a, a joint agreement in 2271 and then 2281 uh, to uh, fully develop the system. Because the uniqueness about Croshaw is that it, it, in itself, as it was its first founding, it was not able to be claimed by any system, uh, by any of the individuals in uh, the soul system, any of the nation states of the soul system could not claim Angeli for, or, or, or uh, Kershaw for their own. It was supposed to be settled on its own as its own independent kind of pol pol uh, polity with um, other people in being involved, uh, which is what the original Freeman Act was in 2271. And the later one was an attempt to help uh, speed along the, um, the development of the system, which would eventually lead to the founding of Quinton. 
So, uh, and Angeli is important because uh, today it is one of the oldest systems next to Seoul. It is the oldest system next to Seoul. And it has the, it's the location, uh, the home, home world of uh, um, Auguste Dunlo, um, who is the founder of Crusader Industries, um, and the founders of the Otoni Syndicate, the Otoni Group, come from Angeli. Uh, Angeli is one of the, those places where you probably will hear a lot of famous people coming from the, from the planet just because it's been around for so long. Uh, also the, uh, radial system on Angeli, the, the rail system was actually developed by Grey Cat. Mm -hmm. That's where Grey Cat got its, its first. Its no, first, not Grey Cat. Uh, um, no, it was, um, it was Argo. Argo. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Not Grey Cat. Argo. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of because it was from last, last episode. <laughs> yeah. From last episode. Yeah. Callback. Um, <laughs> there, go watch the first one. Yeah. Um, I'll end this with, with the, um, with the, 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 a quote from uh, a writer who moved to the city f uh, shortly after the terraforming had completed named uh, Bin uh, Osgood, who said, <clears throat> I, I honestly can't believe I will say this without fiction or imagination. I live on a planet in an alien system. And that's kind of the way that if you were going to say anything about Croshaw, is that it is the first alien system for humanity. So it always kind of remains this sort of weird system compared to the other systems, even places like Terra, which are uniquely alien, but it's always this, always going to be the alien system, the first system that humanity has discovered. So I guess I'll lead on to Jail to talk, to talk a little bit about Redder. So the system I find really interesting in this period is the second system, Rator. Um, I guess that's not surprising. This is a podcast for nerds who are over obsessed with academics, and I uh, just like that university system. So, um, yeah, so Rachel was um, discovered by two students, Leonis Stono and Neil Nemeto, who were both studying for their PhDs at the Martian Institute of Science and Technology, or MIST, as you've heard our reference earlier. Uh, Sono was out there out in Croshaw trying to test out whether her ship's atomic clock would keep time when you go through a jump point and back. And Nemeto was just along for the ride to see some data collecting of Croshaw's plasma. So it's basically like one PhD student just trying something out, the other going, oh, I'll tag along. So Nemeto sent out all these drones to get readings of the system and get some weird readings back. And they find the second jump point, as far as the law says so far. It's the second time anyone's ever noticed these things, and it's just coming from an accidental discovery. This is where things get kind of interesting. And Al was referencing this, this earlier, but they basically chose to, instead of going to the government, they went back to their university and reported it back. And the president of the university got involved, this Adrienne Zemlock. The reason she is interesting is that while she's both an academic, she also used to be a politician. And she's looking at what's happening in Croshaw, and she's seeing... All these private companies trying to, you know, tear everything up. And there's nobody is saying, hang on, what about nature reserves? What about research about these alien worlds? It's go, 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 let's get it developed. So she's not been happy with that. And suddenly she's got all the leverage because she can basically blackmail the government. Today, even in, you know, 2951, it's hard to find a jump point. You basically stumble upon them. These things are almost invisible. There was one floating outside ne Neptune for the entirety of humanity, and we never spotted it. So she's got all the cards, and she can go up to the government and say, oh, yeah, we'll give you this jump point. 
but you've got to set aside 25% of all habitable and terraformed land for educational and research purposes. Now, this became a huge public debate. Corporations were enjoying this kind of ascendancy they had in Croshaw, and they wanted to keep it going, but the entire academic community of the world and Mars all rallied behind this, and public were on side. So the terms were agreed to, and um, Zemlock was so, you know, prominent in this campaign that she got the nickname Rator, which is actually a little bit insulting in some contexts, um, but refers to her being an accomplished and persuasive speaker as well as rhetorical teaching, and that's what they named the system. So there's five planets in the Rator system. Three would eventually become colonized. One's a gas giant, and the one close to the sun isn't really um, up to much. Um, but the really important one for early in development was Rator 2, or which became known as Persei. Um, the reason why it's important is because it had the economic importance of mineral wealth. It had the valuable rare elements of Neodymium, Erbium, and Samarium. And the extraction of those basically bankrolled this whole dream of a system founded around this public good of higher education. So the long and storied history of the rate system is a bit too big to cover fully in this podcast. Um, and I'm going to recommend, obviously, you re check out the Lawmaker's Guide. Mm -hmm. And also, I have written extensively on the starsystem.tools wiki about University to the Rator system. You can check that out. But I'll give you a, give you a brief overview of the three planets um, and famous things that involve with them. Uh, Rater 2, Persei, as I mentioned before, that's home to the University of Persei Advanced Analytical, sorry, Analytical Research and Qualification, or UPARC. And they're involved in a lot of engineering work and a lot of um, the classified UEE projects. Magda Hurston, who was responsible for the purchase of the Hurston planet and its moons, uh, was worked at UPARC. And the founders of Maxox and Bazos Arms would all attend or work at some point. Rater 3, or Riser has a reputation for being a hotbed of student activism and a destination for people who want to balance work and play. It's home to both Carey University and the more prestigious University of Rator, which was attended by the second CEO of Greycat Industrial and the founders of Asperia and Caldera. Rator 4, or Mentor, is the furthest out habitable planet and is a rather cold and inhospitable place, has a reputation for being the home of the more diligent and work-focused student. Its best-known institution is also the oldest and the largest, the University of Mentor, and that's where Leilani Addison was Dean of Applied Scientists um, before she stepped down to run for Imperator. And also the first human ambassador to Xi'an was a Xi'an Studies professor from Mentor. So it's a bit of a whistle-stop tour, um, and don't make the mistake of thinking that these are the only universities in the UEE, but it certainly holds this kind of crown jewel status of this um, strange system which is been set aside for public good and public purposes. It's had a big impact on UE history because of the people who've come through the walks the hallowed halls of of um, the universities, and it's I I think you know is a, is a really place that I'm really looking forward to visiting. <laughs> it's very it's very research based. It's very it's very academic. Mm. Um, I I will I will do a little bit of a tangent because it's one of the one of the things you found mm. that I thought was really funny was the uh wasn't was it one of the um founders of drake was from from redder as well that was terror well well no, i think that that whole thing just just talk about that yeah. whole thing which is great i love it oh you're there 
it's just if it's not from Reddit, it's just evidence that there's more universities within the UAE. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that there was. I, th I think that one of the founders must have been from. He must have studied at Reto because one of the other founders of Drake went to Terra University, and this snooty founder goes, "Oh, Terra University. They'll give you a PhD just for landing on the planet." Yeah, and it's yeah. just like the that, that's, that's, that's certainly a, that's certainly a um someone from Reto. It's, it's a bit like. Yeah. You know, when I was at uni, you'd talk about BAs, you know, just, just go to the toilet and take off a sheet of paper, you know. So. <laughs> um, oh, the best part is it was it was Jan Dredge, who's the actual, like, f founder, but she's she's considered the founder. She's the one who went to Terry University, and her co-founder was just like, yeah, they just throw they just throw PhDs at you when you landed. And the way the way that you, you, you posted that was just like Jan Dredge <laughs> from, from Terry University. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> There yeah. is some sneakiness. I mean, like, I, th I think it was the founder of Basilisk Arms. Um, he she attended UPARC and she dropped out because she wanted to change degree. And they were like, no, you can't. So I go, fine, I'm going to go to the University of Tram, which is like dropping out of like MIT to go to community college, essentially. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with community college, but like in yeah. terms of that prestige. kind of perceived prestige um, to study engineering. And, and everyone goes like, it was that classic thing of you know Bill Gates dropping out of Harvard. That yeah. someone who's so clever they don't need them. Yeah. yeah. All right. The, so we'll, we'll, I guess we'll, if unless you want to talk more, we'll move on to you there, Albert, with your your system. I, I was going to uh, make a comment on to go back and do Croshaw okay. because you made the comment about all the seismic activity on Croshaw. And, and jelly. I also didn't it, talk about it, Van, but I didn't talk about Van yeah. because Van is is there's there's almost nothing on Van other than it's basically abandoned now. But so, <laughs> what? I, but what I was um think or questioning was whether the seismic activity around Angeli was a result of just natural seismic activity, or whether it was a product of a terraforming glitch, because. As I was reading, there was, I came across terraforming glitches that caused, oh, the planet's now a desert planet. We've mm -hmm. got the terraforming glitch on, uh, you, you know, um, Microtech. Microtech. I was, I was going New Babbage. I was saying, no, that's the city. What's the, what's the planet? Um, which is now always cold. I'm pretty certain I've read of other micro, um, terraforming glitches that have caused, you know, desert planets and, mm -hmm. and other things. And so, the question was because I'd been having so many troubles with terraforming, and because it was in its infancy, being really the, the second planet that's being terraformed or attempted to be terraformed. The question was: Is that a is that seismic activity a, a result of terraforming and the problems of terraforming, or is it just that it was happening anyway? I don't think we've got an answer to it, but it was certainly something that was so just, I thought raising. Welcome to InfoWars. Um, we've got uh, Algorid, who's going to sell you some, some supplements um, <laughs> and, and, and tell you that the UEE is, turning, is, is, is creating earthquakes to prevent you from living on a jelly. Slam That's right, desk, because, you know? because, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a soul man. I've got soul. <laughs> and you're a terrorist. You love terror. You know, so. <laughs> it's all conspiracy. That's right. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, Al, what was the system you chose? I ended up going with Oberon. Um, I was, I've got to admit, I, I struggled. I, I thought they were all interesting. Um, I was originally thinking um, Hafkart because Hafkart is empty. Mm -hmm. uh, not because it was easy. <laughs> 
but because it's also where Spider is. But um, Jarl said, hey, look at Oberon. And as I started looking at Oberon, it became, it became like a, a, a rabbit hole. And so Oberon it is. So sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful ship, fateful trip, <laughs> but started from some distant port aboard a tiny ship. The story of Oberon begins like an episode from an ancient vid stream in the mid 20th century, Gilligan's Island. Except in this instance, there were no survivors. Oberon begins with the story of the Lindy. Reports indicate the Lindy was a ship from a small exploration company, and the many that sprang up with the discovery of Croshaw and the efforts to terraform it and its planets, or terraform the planets of Croshaw. Any system discovered in that first hundred years, um, or certainly in that period up to our first contact, with the possible exception of Retta, and even Retta to some extent, would have experienced the similar event of companies going in and trying to make profit. The idea of terraforming companies and even explorers was certainly uh, huge. And in the heyday of jumpers, uh, you had explorers going out everywhere. When the Tarsus, when the new Tarsus jump drive with flight assist came in, you actually had an explosion of uh, explorers going out looking for jump points. The crew and the, the crew of the Lindy and the, uh, of the Lindy and her crew had been, um, according to the documents, exploring the outer reaches of Null. Now, as we were talking about earlier with the changes to the map, uh, we think that this will be retconned to uh, say they were searching in the outer reaches of Caliban, but we actually don't know this at the moment. Um, this small company's funds had almost been exhausted, and it was right at the last point when they were at their final dregs of their fuel and everything else that they discovered a jump point. And when they went through the jump point, they discovered Oberon. Oberon was a system with six stars, six stars, six planets. Dear me, six stars would be horrendous. Um, so they very hot. That'd be a very hot system. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It would be a very hot system. Well, depending, could have, could have been a cold, uh, numerous cold stars. Um, but they made the jump and they thought, awesome, our luck has changed. We're in the money. This is going to be massive for terraforming companies. We're going to, you know, we'll make them in. They made the jump back. And due to the dangers of making jump points, even with nav drive, uh, the ship was critically damaged. And by the time it dropped into uh, back into Null or, or Caliban, the crew had all perished. A couple of days later, a salvage ship came along. And due to the fact that there was no centralised government, due to the fact that Croshaw was unclaimed, or sorry, due to the fact that Noel was unclaimed, um, they had rights of salvage. And they retrieved the nav data, which was really, really valuable to them, and sold it off to the highest bidder. Corporations were jumping, were, were scrambling and fighting and bidding in their enthusiasm, fueled by the efforts to terraform Croshaw. A terraforming company, Titania Terraforming, was successful in winning the bid 
and owning the rights to this new system. They immediately set forward plans to terraform Uriel, the second planet in the system. Now, some commentators claim that Titania terraforming carried out an experiment and tricked and tricked their um, people to move to the system. Um, our archivist, I'm sorry, our archivist from um, in uh, the uh, Lawmaker's Guide to the Galaxy on um, on the system uh, does make this claim, but I actually think it's not. I think it's an unfair statement. The truth appears to be less sinister. Having expended most of their capital, Titania came up with the idea of selling land plots on the terraformed world to their workers and also investors. Their approach to terraforming Uriel was a bit different. They decided to try and attempt to uh, warm the planet by using thermal energy, by heating the core and then using the, the core's heat to warm the planet. Despite their best efforts and many years of toiling, Titania terraforming concluded the efforts were a failure. And almost overnight, the company ceased to exist. They just, they just collapsed. Once they, once they admitted we can't do it, the company just collapsed. And it's at that point, people who were working in entertain, in Uriel, uh, working on the terraforming, had invested, they were now stuck there. Um, but one of the things they had done early on is they'd built their settlement underground. The, the star was just so, um, so harsh that you couldn't live on the surface unless you had the planets terraformed and, and, and the rest of it. And so the settlements were living underground, which was really good news for them. Um, the Oberon system is doesn't really have too much in it that is valuable. And so the UEE has ignored it. No one wants to claim it. While there is, or no one wants to claim it now, while there are resources there, which you could make money on, it has been determined that it is not worth investing any more into the system to eat money out, to, it's just not profitable. But why is Oberon so important? Oberon is important because it has a jump point to Vega. It also has a jump point to Virgil. Um, it also has a jump point to, I've got to go back and look at my notes. Hang on, sorry. Pull up my, pull up my scrappy notes. Um, it also has a jump point to Vega, um, Oberon, and Virgil, if I remember correctly. Um, Tiber, according to what it, is, it says. Tiber, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so three red systems and Vega. And, um, or three Vandal systems, which were all controlled by human at one, humanity at one point, and uh, Vega. It's important because it's got four jump points. It's important because um, it's where we've recently had a UEE uh, fleet under Admiral Bishop with his uh, massive ship, the Retribution, turn back a Vandal attack fleet. It is possible that the Vandal fleet that attacked Vega 2 uh, came through um, the Oberon system. Oberon's people are independent. They haven't been 
accepted by the UE and the UE and Oberon hasn't been claimed. But it has that role of being one of these planets that's that's a linchpin. From there we could launch attacks into into Vandal space. From there we can actually expand it once more. Or it becomes a, a point of defense. We block that, we block we block one of the routes into Vega. Um, it's just one of those planets that really does say that, that one of the lynch, one of the, the keys in, in the, uh, the document, um, the, the Galactic Guide, says um, fools rush in. And it's an unfair, I think it's an unfair comment to say un, fools rush into this system. Uh, being the idea that they rushed in, they made their investments and they failed. Fools rush in, hubris and cry, hubris and greed really sum up any system from this period. Um, but this one really just encapsulates and just shows the dangers of jumping, the dangers of going to a new system. Um, and the failures that can, can occur. I'm just looking at. I, I looked. I pulled up the 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 wiki on it, and I love the the uh, the this, the Gon system. The reason why it's or the Gon yep. planet Gon. Why it's called Gon is because uh, a, one of the one of the famous uh, settlers uh, used to used to chase off rival ships by saying, "Chinwa better get gone." Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just called Gon. Change your show on where you go. It's like a, it's like a very, very loser Anna kind of, kind of. Uh... <laughs> well, well, Garn is uh, just one of the nice things about Garn is Garn is actually the remnants of the what was the second star. Um, it's uh, just a, a graphite heavy world, and so, um, and so the, the this this the, the idea was that this planet would be a great source for diamonds and it's almost mm -hmm. the law everyone goes there looking for diamonds but um so far there's been very few diamonds found and they've been poor quality but the fact that it's a, a carbon just a carbon core world um keeps filling people with that ah oh, you know it, it's out there it's out there um i guess so, one of the, the the real world things that made inspired this and i've always thinking about is um is the show deadwood or more specifically the the town that yeah uh, in, that creates the show because there you've also got this situation where prospectors essentially are going out ahead of the line of where they're meant to be into the place which is not legally part of it and they're sitting there mining get finalized gold and going oh i really hope that the uh the government comes and makes this a state or oh, some of them don't want that but I think it's a really interesting example of of a, a population of humans outside the UEE that aren't there because just because they hated the UEE, like Levski. Yeah. Well, certainly a lot of the humans outside of the UEE, a lot of them were there because they they took signed on with Titania ter hmm. terraforming, and they're the relatives of those people who'd bought into it, but they just can't afford to leave. Um, mm. Or they made it home and they like living there. It is that kind of you know you do have both you, that situation, and you will have people who come in looking to to make make cash, and you'll also have people who are coming in because there's a lack of government control. Um, they are though 
and they're lucky that they're underground because the planet has been visited by the Vandal a couple of times. We know of at least twice. Uh, second time, um, they they made an attack and then they came back a sec uh, to visit Melian and Admiral Bishop turned up and booted them out. And so currently it's said that there's a large UAE naval presence there. And that could actually be the the, the linchpin, the, the, not the linchpin, the fulcrum that kind of spurs this system on to actually expand and ex and just explode in terms of development. Quick vote um, between the three of us. Should the UEE take in Oberon if the people want it? Should we take responsibility for protecting them and make them a UEE system? I'd say yes. Yes. I'm a yes. If the, Oberon, if the people of Oberon want it. That's the, yep. that's if, the key. Yeah. Because I agree like, with that. like the null system would also be a good place to have a UE settlement, but it's currently a basically a pirate system. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible slave trading, horrible hellhole. Yeah, but certainly with certainly with with Oberon, I actually think the people want it because they they've been raided by the Vandal at least twice that we know yeah. of before the UE turned up a fleet and kicked them out, and. Sadly, I think the only reason the UE turned up is because my, I'm assuming, I'm making a, a, an assumption here, is that that's where the Vandal fleet came from that, that attacked Va Vega. Vega. So they've, they've actually ch chased the fleet from, from Vega and basically followed it back. And, and um, yeah, so it's quite plausible. Yeah, quite plausible. Uh, another fun fact about that battle, uh, which we'll, we'll probably come to eventually at some distant future, is that this is also the battle where the um, we see extensive use of the um, the Nautilus was, was was extensively used in that battle. Um, so there's there's like a whole history about the Nautilus, and it's one of the major battles it participated in. And the reason why we have the Perseus being made today is because uh, the Perseus. Um, there was a ship. I can't remember the name of the ship. Uh, I'll have to look it up. It's just kind of blanked in my mind. I'll look at it real quickly. Um, but the Perseus was uh, itself um, during uh, the Achilles. The the UES Achilles was at the Battle of, um, of Oberon, also known as Operation Mandrake. Um, it was at a critical moment of the battle, it charged in and basically tanked three different capital ships and disabled three, three Vandal capital ships before it got destroyed. And it was an aging ship at that point. And the, it did so well that Bishop, uh, Admiral Bishop himself asked RSI to reintroduce the Perseus. So like Oberon's is, is an important system if you like the Perseus, because it's the system that reintroduced the Perseus. Without Oberon, without the Battle of Oberon, you wouldn't have the Perseus, so. You know, so that's, a, that's a ship that we've missed off the list of uh, UEE ships on the wiki. I'll fix that tomorrow. Yeah, it deserves to be remembered. I'm looking at it. Well, but... the yeah, the, it's it doesn't have its own page yet. And, yeah. Oh, I've got to I've got to get it its own page. It, it, yeah. it obviously needs its own page. It just as you're talking there, it reminded me of the um, the HMS Sydney, uh, the Sydney World War Two um, cruiser, I think. Pride of the Australian Navy, like kind of like the, the Prince of Wales type thing. Um, and when it was in the Mediterranean theatre, it sank an Italian battleship. 
<laughs> it was like, it was like um, unfortunately, when it returned to Australia and was refitted, it then encountered a, a German raider and the captain being a new captain, being a, put on the ship and he, um, rather than keeping range and dealing with the ship as he probably should have, got into range of torpedoes and, and the deck guns that had been hidden and, and yeah. Yeah. And the Sydney was uh, mortally wounded and uh, went down. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so shall uh, I push on with? Uh... Yeah, let's go. Why don't you tell us about the UNE? Oh, it's the the crowning accomplishment of the era. So, it's it's widely understood that the modern UEE of Star System follows on from this long period of fascism under the Mesa dictators when it was still called the UEE but it was a very different UE to the one we know now. Before that, people have heard the United Planets of Earth, the UPE. Um, we'll get to that in a future episode. But it's important to note that the UPE was only around for 23 years, barely any time at all. And before this, 143 years were spent under the first unified government, which is the United Nations of Earth. Now, obviously, the modern UEE, it's no utopia. It's better than it used to be, but it's not like a great place to live necessarily. Um, it's a common trope in sci-fi, I think, to have this kind of halcyon day, golden age that you've come from and you've kind of fallen from. And I'm kind of glad that Star System doesn't do that and that the UNE is probably a, a little bit less shiny than really it might seem in retrospect. So the UNE was proclaimed on April 23rd, 2380, so last week, uh, and that was during the General Assembly of Session the General Assembly session of week two of the World Summit. Now, Paul mentioned the World Summit earlier. They never explicitly say this, but World Summit, it's an event held by the United Nations of the real world every year. Part of that's the General Assembly. So I think it's fair to say that this is implying the United Nations that we know today. Uh, so by this time, several superpowers had ris arisen on Earth, including the North American Alliance. Uh, the representatives of these superpowers announced to the other nations of the Earth that are gathered that they intended to form a single governing body for Earth and the planets that humans were colonizing, and that they would be putting this to referenda in their respective countries, obviously with a lot of confidence that these referenda would pass. So we've been talking about the backdrop to this, and Croshaw has been going for about 100 years, but it's been fits and starts on getting it terraformed. We've had um, that process was largely due to this World Summit founded committee of these superpowers working together to establish a foothold. Ten systems been discovered, no small amount of chaos created by allowing this expansion to uh, continue without a single set of rules. We've had wildcat colonization, governments being blackmailed by academics. And the superpowers are looking at this and thinking the times we've actually got stuff done is when we're working together. So let's just put it all aside and just get, get on with that and form one government. Um, smaller nations lack the resources to do this without them. And it's a rationale that it might seem a bit strange, but we're talking about 200 years where they're reflecting on 200 years of accomplishments that only worked when they worked together. They're already having to work tightly together and they're just taking really a very small next step by becoming unified. So the first meeting of the UNE Council would occur on July 12th, known henceforth as Council Day, and that was renamed to Tribunal Day and eventually Imperator's Day under the successor states. 
Later that year, on November 8th, the armed forces of the world, or representatives thereof, would march from different points of New York City to the UNE Senate building, taking an oath that founded the unified UNE armed forces. And that oath is still used by the UEE today. This event is commemorated by Pax Humana in the modern UEE, roughly equivalent to Remembrance Day. Um, and that's all that, you know, Council Day, Pax Humana, that's the story that UEE likes to remember about the UNE. However, unification was not entirely bloodless. Uh, in an ironic counterpoint to the demonstration of armed force unity in New York, it was a mutiny on a naval warship that would kickstart a backlash known as the Unification Wars. So on October 20th, almost three weeks before that demonstration, the crew of the warship Stanley would overthrow their officers and start the conflict, which went on for four years. And it would take several nations, including that four-year war, to for it would take several years for all nations to subscribe to this new government. And I'll just say on that that there might be some new law coming in the next Galactopedia drop about the Unification Wars. So mm. watch that Stay space tuned. for yeah. yeah. So what do we actually know about what it was like under the UNE? Well, it's quite similar to the modern UEE. There was some border reorganization on Earth. Modern state of Asiatica was formed upon unification of the UNE. The basic subunit of the government was equivalent to modern UEE states, but was still referred to as nations during this time. Each nation set representatives to a parliament that has been referred to as Congress or Senate in different sources. And there was a council which was uh, which wasn't a separately elected executive like a president, though, as far as we can tell. Uh, that's one of the big changes that we have later on. Uh, it's very clear that corporations, though, still had a very great amount of power because of a contingent of prominent and pol powerful politicians who were dedicated to keep the UNE government as, in their words, lean and efficient as possible, believing that industry with the private sector would rise to fill any gaps. And they were kind of right for better or worse. Another important thing to think about in terms of how nice the UNE was is that they were the ones who came up with this idea of citizenship, this two-tier citizenship still in the UEE. Like in the modern system, it was something you earned through military and community service, but was also linked to family power and privilege. The UNE army was also founded in 2380, with the Navy following on shortly afterwards. And the units that would later become the UEE Marines were a part of the army at the time. The UNE Navy was mostly a police force and was having to deal with the inter-system crime that was coming about from basically from Croshaw and other systems. Criminal gangs were hiding out in bits of, uh, harder to see bits of these systems and then bringing their drugs and guns back to earth. So they were immediately tasked with dealing with that. Um, but then the heavy-handedness of that created the Customs Bureau, which now persists to this day with the Train Development Division. Now, to return to my initial point that this was no golden age, unification obviously had a lot of positive outcomes and was done with some laudable aims. And the law of this time portrays the citizens of the UNE as still essentially beholden to the whims of powerful corporations. It was a government that was explicitly set up to represent the inhabitants of Earth and not the many colonists who struck out for new discovered, newly discovered systems. Uh, or even the Martian population who have been around for about 200 years at this point. It's not clear if people on extrasolar worlds were entirely unrepresented or were treated as overseas voters of Earth-based nations, but it's clear that the government was not built with them in mind, even though it was built in response to colonial expansion. 
So it might be that another really big impetus for these superpowers coming together was they knew their time, their days were numbered as the biggest powers, and that they wanted to preserve the importance of Earth at the expense of colonial worlds. It was also a government that established to a hierarchy of citizenship that evolved into this system of privilege and discrimination. So in short, it was a lot like the Monuee. Flawed democracy, whose shortcomings may well have inevitably led to its, its eventual backslide into authoritarianism. So that's my bit on the UNE. Um, I think there's, there's a little bit of theory crafting, headcanon stuff. I think, and please, please discuss this if, if you disagree, I think that the citizenship might have originally come out with a good idea, which is saying, we've got these nations of Earth, how about we can let people apply to be a nation of all the countries at once? And then this like became the structure that led to the citizenship we know now. I, That's my theory. I, I tend to agree with that. Uh, I think it's twofold. I think that it might've been a way of saying, you don't have to use a passport anymore. Congratulations. Um, and, or making it easier, giving it easier time to access those, what citizenship is today is like the idea is that you want to have a multi-system corporation a lot easier if you're a citizen. Um, mm. you know, so it, it just to streamline a lot of those things. And I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that the unification wars are the reason why citizenship exists as well, because I can imagine a massive multi-system war between humanity's various chaotic factions um, if, if, if not just a war through soul system, which hadn't happened up to this point, really, that we know of, um, especially on this scale, uh, would probably facilitate, we need soldiers, <laughs> we need them now. So join up and we'll give you privileges, you know, uh, in this new government. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to learning about the unification war. There's very little to glean. It's mm. mostly in a gift for Barbar, which is the story that they're currently publishing. I, you know, they refer to them as wars at some point. So I'm wondering if it's going to be like a, it's obviously not some big total war because I think we would have mm. heard about it more and it didn't tarnish the UNE that much. So I'm, I'm half expecting it to be like little skirmishes here or there. It could be a full bone war. We'll find out. The um, other thing that, uh, let me, the no, other thing, I, I will go over this Sorry. a little bit, a little bit is that up um, in, I learned a little bit about the kind of outlaws in, in, uh, Star Citizen, some of the history of, the, of Outlaws. And one of the earliest gangs that exists, still exists today, is the Nova Riders. And the, the Nova Riders are the uh, this gang. Uh, the reason why they were so famous is because they're the first ones to hit transports in progress, which was never done before. And that wasn't until after the UNE had formed. So mm. even at this time period, conflicts were very expensive. You probably didn't even have really many armed vessels, um, period, you know, uh, and mm. like most gangs were operating where they would just jump people when they got into a station. They would they would gather outside of a station. So when someone docked, they would come out and they'd jump them and take their stuff and, and run. So even in these conflicts might be simply the reason why they're not as devastating as, say, modern conflicts in Star Citizen's history has to do with the fact that the uh, conflicts were probably short, sporadic conflicts over stations or small colonies yeah. or rather than these grand fleet battles because, you know, there's like seven warships or whatever in the entire, in the entire human, human, yeah. human space. Yeah. So, But that raises uh, two thoughts. One is the idea of the armies of Earth marching on the, uh, on the Senate. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I get the idea of it wasn't so much for marching to say we're unified. I get the idea it was the superpowers armies basically marching and saying, you're going to agree. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't agree and we're going to stomp you. And here's our force to, to kind of inform, to kind of coerce you to do that. Um, it's yeah. definitely a show of force, certainly. Yeah. As much as it is a show of unity, it's a show of force. So it kind of works on, on, on both sides. The other thing that, um, as, as we were talking about with Stanley, that, that I got thinking about was the fact that it is a warship, like a spaceship that's rebelled and is going there. And the unification wars, as, as we soon say, took on the platforms and the colonies and other things. And so that raises the question, um, or goes back to the question we're raising in terms of whether it's a Mars. While it was the United Nations of Earth, um, I think at that point you were still kind of, even though you still had settlers being Martian and being separate, it was still that idea that they are still humans and still part of that kind of wider community. And I know that when we look at the, when we've been talk, when, when we've talked Senate in the other end, and I've asked questions in the past, but planets have governors and the governors committees then elect their members to be the representatives in the Senate that go to the the UEE Senate. So where that changed, I'm not sure. I would have to do a lot more work in that. But... I think that changed when they changed the UPE. And they say, and we'll get to yeah. that later, and, and I, but they, they kind of say that these people were unrepresented or improperly represented. In, in, in not clearly represented, yeah. And, and, yeah. I, and I think that's why they do, they do make that shift. It wasn't, and my understanding of that shift wasn't necessarily that, oh, we're not representing it. It's just that they're being represented, but it makes more sense to actually say, call it what it actually is. It's the United Planets of Earth rather than the United Nations of Earth because we've got multiple planets. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of get the feeling that maybe, like, I, I doubt they could have gone on that long with that mm. many planets being that important and everyone being okay with the fact that they have no say in the government. So I think they must have had something like you know oh i live on croatia i'm a european citizen according to my passport so i get to vote for the european senator mm. even though the european senator kind of doesn't really care about and the, you know the problems about angeli but that's my representative yeah. but I, I don't know i guess they'll they might flesh that out we'll see yeah. i mean this this is ancient history as far as anything modern's yeah. concerned to, for, for context what we're talking about would be the equivalent of 15th century 16th century um for modern day uh but for 400 500 years from from now so if you can if you can think about the the government structure of florence italy in the, in the 16th century and know the ins and outs of how those work then you probably will it uh, would you know not very many people know that and i don't think even people care about that so much in the in the 30th century in, yeah. in space it's more of a I, yeah the important things are really about like you know what what citizenship is and where that came mm. from and like it, you know understand the broad strokes of how we got from there to here mm. and I, yeah. that's the, yeah so so we don't need to get too pedantic about mm. like you know how do you fill out what ballot system is the <laughs> une what is what does my passport what say about? you know yeah. is it and a transferable vote mm. <laughs> yeah um i was also going to say another thing about citizenship two things actually one is that citizenship i also think that citizenship formed as a practical application to a problem of a planet of, of, a, of a species which is growing exponentially 
growing faster than, than they've ever grown before and expanding into incredible distances. Because we know it used to be the point, or actually it still is the point, where if you want to vote, you have to be cast your ballot in your system you're from or in very specific systems. So even if you are in a system that is a um, that is part of the UEE, UEE, you may not have the ability to cast your vote in that system. You may have to go to a nearer system to cast your vote. So it's this big, complicated process that takes year or takes an entire year to go through because of the you know the unreliability of trying to do digital transfer of your voting through you know information uh, runners and such like that. So people have to physically go to these locations, and I can imagine that if you have billions of humans and all of them are just happen to be part of a citizen of a nation that is part of the UNE, uh, and they all have the right to vote for the representatives, you start going into this. That's a lot of ballots. That's a lot of counting. Um, that's a lot of room that's for lot error. Of <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, having the, the, the qualifications of citizenship also says, hey, do you got skin in the game? Do you actually care about this? Cool. Now you get to vote. It, it also, it, so it allows for the people who are the most loyal to the government or who, who have the most vested in the government to participate in it, but also reduce the just quantities of votes to make it easier for, for logistically to, 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 for, for voting things. Also, but it, be, it is a rejection be, of just liberal, like the liberal ideas oh, yeah. that governed earth for, for hundreds of years. So you, you, I think you're right with your, your point that like, it might be tied to the wall because it, there kind of needs to seem to be an instigating event but i think also it won't have happened overnight that no. it will have started some really small little thing that's like oh yeah you can just you know you don't have to travel without a passport and then they just kept hanging extra little bells and whistles onto this thing that mm -hmm. that it came became slowly a recognition of a you know a, a recognition of things that already exist like the fact that you know, if you've got a PhD and you've got money, you can live in any country in the world. It's, yeah. it's a completely different rule than if you were like an itinerant worker for farms. Yeah. I was also going to say that like the, the corporations, the angle is the thing too. That's a constant theme throughout Star Citizen. Corporations are not your friends and they're not good. Mm. Like, like that's the, the theme, the theming in Star <laughs> Citizen is the corporations are at best neutral and at worst trying to kill you. Um, the only, <laughs> only exception to that one, I think, is Crusader. And even and they are, not, and Crusader may not be awesome and wonderful, but they are certainly in the law soon to be the the good guys, as as opposed to every other yeah. corporation. You I, I, I don't I don't think you'll find anybody who lives in Grimhax who would call Crusader a good guy. But um, you know, <laughs> uh, but but still, like like that's that's another kind of thing to go through is that like corporations have a lot of power in the UNE, and that would continue on through. The UPE and the U and the UE, like corporations, are the kind of like a fourth, fifth branch of government. It's another another branch of the government, unofficially, uh, are the major corporations that would run Earth and run these um, systems. Yeah, I think you'll get into, you get into really interesting themes when you start thinking about what the alien races reflect about the hu the commentary about human corporations when you look at how they do business. And I think yeah. we'll, we'll save that for later, but that's, that gets into some interesting areas. That's something we don't actually know because again, all the law and all the history we get is actually from that human side. We don't get a Xeon. We do get a little history. bit of Xeon perspective. We, but the, we, the, we have a lot of perspective on how they do things from our perspective, but I think yeah. that you can, you can read it in terms of like, as, as, a, as a product, what is, what are the writers trying to say with like what they say around these people? Mm -hmm. 
because it all reflects back on us really right mm. now the other one with citizenship that i think is that i like is the fact that it actually mirrors and this goes back to an episode that paul and i have done with, on the info runners basically the romanesque uh almost feel mm -hmm. of citizens of um star citizen and that is that citizenship in the roman empire was basically uh, was earned you earned it by either being in the military or you earned it by doing service to the uh, to the empire and so the city of tarsus uh, was actually given colonial status was actually given uh, citizenship rights because they had supported um the first the first emperor augustus in his in his civil wars and so you know the the apostle paul could say to someone hey you whip me and i'm a roman citizen you guys are in deep crap yeah. <laughs> and the other yeah, i mean Jerome would say well you know I, I bought my i bought mine and paul says yeah yeah but i was born a roman yeah. you know so you got that you've got that you know snidiness even at that point in the roman empire and citizenship and that's the type of thing i think we see in star citizen you can earn it or you've got to you know do a lot of service or you know and it's yeah, yeah. it's just one really nice yeah. It's, it's undoubtable that like the Roman citizenship system was a major inspiration when you consider, you know, how much early on they were trying to do Roman Empire technified in space. Mm -hmm. And it stuck around. And I think that, you know, like, like many of those early concepts, you know, the back of the napkin, you know, mm -hmm. two guys in a, in a room working out what's this game going to be. It, it, it's it'll grow beyond that but i it's certainly worth mentioning those original inspiration roots mm -hmm. yep. yeah i think i think that's it for us i think jail wants to sleep yeah. <laughs> we, it's only I, 1 a.m i i, I need to use the rest I, I need to use the restroom and uh uh, uh I mean, alger could talk talk for another four hours here because he just got up you know yeah we'll just leave him on <laughs> yeah and just leave him on and the whole thing uh thank you for, thank you <laughs> Thank you so much for, for listening to this or watching this and uh, make sure that you are um, subscribed to the info runners. Make sure you're subscribed to jail and follow us on all social media. So make sure they're in the top comment this time. Um, and there will be an audio version of this. If you're listening to this on the audio version, ignore this, but we're, uh, we're, we'll be, there'll be an audio version that'll be putting up uh, shortly. Um, and we'll I'll find a way of getting around it. But I think what I might do is set up some sort of system where I can pay people like Jail and, and Al to come on so I can get a little bit of money. So, I, or, or at least a system that I can pay for just the hosting of it. Because a lot of people ask about podcast in just pure audio format, which is fine. But unfortunately, if you do something like Podbean, you, they have a limit to the amount of things you can upload and the, the size that you can upload. So I either have to cut these up into smaller, tiny little episodes or I have to pay a small fee. And while the fee isn't bad, it's like it's like $16 a month. And it's like, ah, I, I, ways of advantages and disadvantages. So what, what we might find a way of monetizing this a little bit just so to pay for the costs. And so I can pay for the, the time and effort that Jail and Al put into all of these episodes as well. So thanks again. And uh, like I say every time, uh, remember, Existoria at Astra. <laughs>